Well, good evening to you all. My name is John McCombs. I'm one of the assistant pastors here at City Reform. I want to welcome you. And as Joseph said, this is our evening service. And given I see a few newer faces, I just want to remind everyone, uh, this building is under construction. So, uh, afterwards, if you want a tour, you want to walk over, see some of the progress, that could probably be arranged. But uh, don't go over there unattended. Looks like I have the only children here tonight. Uh, So I won't send that warning out, but we can't let kids run loose. And if you need to use a restroom, it's downstairs, all right? The ones on this floor are being totally redone right now. There's nothing there. So uh, head downstairs. You'll see signs uh, leading you to the restroom. So welcome, and it's good to be with you. Good to be in the house of the Lord tonight. Tonight we're going to begin a sermon series in the book of First Peter. So if you brought your Bibles, and that's how you uh, prefer to read God's Word from your scriptures, then uh, open up your copies of God's Word. We'll be reading the first couple verses. If not, it's printed in your bulletin. And uh, there are also inserts for the bulletin. I am no prophet, um, but as it turns out, there are four Presbyterian pastors here tonight at least. And for the very first time in my entire life, not only do I have a three-point sermon don't tell Dr. Pruto, Alan. There's alliteration. <clears throat> so something was moving before me, um, and I didn't get a special word from the Lord, but I have a word from the Lord tonight, but I didn't know that. So uh, if you want an outline, they are in the back table uh, as well. So hear God's word now from First Peter, just the first two verses as we get underway. As, uh, as is our custom, uh, after I read the scripture, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. If you could respond with thanks be to God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we do thank you for this, your word. Father, we pray that you would give us hope in your word, that you would point us to Christ even this evening, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his seated at your right hand in glory, that he's ruling and reigning in the midst of our struggles in the midst of our wanderings, Lord, that you have not left us. And so, Father, walk with us. Walk with us as we hear your word. Walk with us the rest of this evening. Walk with us all of our days. And bring us into your presence once again. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, I'll ask you a question. What does it feel like to be homesick? What does it feel like to be homesick? Can you remember the last time you were homesick? Might be a few weeks ago, could be a few months ago, could be years ago. Maybe you're going all the way back to the first time you were homesick. Can you remember the first time, the very first time you were homesick? For most of us, we were probably little. You know, it could have happened for a variety of circumstances. We could have went away to a camp for the summer. We could have went to stay with grandma and grandpa for a while. We could have moved. It could be various reasons, right? We could have moved later on in life. Maybe that's the first time. Maybe when we first moved out of our parents' house. Maybe it was a job. 
Maybe it was the military. Maybe it was going off to college. And you probably, for a while, felt a little homesick. You missed some things that were very comfortable to you. You felt out of place. You felt like where you were wasn't truly your home. You had a longing. You had a desire for things that were familiar. You wanted to go back. You wanted to be home. I want you to picture yourself. Uh, Many of you may have moved here from other cities. Is that true? Raise your hand if you've moved here from somewhere else. You're not originally from Pittsburgh. Oh, let me try and see what maybe the first couple months for you were like when you got here. So you've left some other lesser state in the Union or even an international location. You've come here to our glorious Pittsburgh. It probably didn't take you too long to say, my goodness, what is wrong with these people? (laughs) Their life revolves around sports. Everything in this town is black and gold. Came here, maybe you wanted to put a good foot forward, right? You wanted to, you know, maybe as you moved here, you're like, you know what, I'm going to get back in shape. And then so, right, you go out to eat and uh, and you want to have a nice sandwich or a salad. What is with these people? They put french fries on sandwiches and salads. I'm trying to take care of myself here and they're putting french fries on sandwiches and salads. You're new. You don't know how to get somewhere. You ask for directions. What in the world happened to north, south, east, and west? They have disappeared in this little section of western Pennsylvania. And not only are they gone, but people give you directions based off of, you know what I'm going to say, where things used to be. Like before you lived here, right? Go to the the old Coons or this gas station or the Isleys and turn right. And you're like, what? There's nothing there. Of course, one of the first things maybe you noticed is how we speak. You're wondering what the heck is a catch, right? Where is downtown? What the heck is a yint, right? A yint, second person plural. You mean like you all or y'all, depending on yints, right? Whoa, what happened to proper English? It's gone. It doesn't exist here. And then one more thing. What in the world happened to the sun? It existed where I used to live. I don't see it here anymore. Right? So you could move to this, our lovely city, and it could be a rude awakening. I thank you and congratulate you for staying. You have overcome much. But for a while, I'll bet you were a little bit homesick. I'll bet you missed some things from where you used to live. And if we're humble enough as Pittsburghers, we might say rightly so. Of course, when Pittsburghers go around the city, they miss here desperately. When we move around the country, right? So not only do we create a Steelers bar in every city in this nation and around the world. I've been to one in Budapest. (laughs) That's the first thing we do. Uh, But in addition to that, we found a way to send Minio's pizza and Permandi Brothers sandwiches all around the world. So even when we go elsewhere, we are homesick. Everybody knows what it's like at one level to feel a bit homesick. I think the Apostle Peter is writing tonight to people who are a bit homesick. 
They're a bit homesick for their true home. Their spiritual home. And so as we dive into this book of 1 Peter tonight, we want to keep that in mind. This is a book for exiles. This is a book for those who are not in their true homes. And that comes with a lot. That comes with suffering, sacrifice, feeling uncomfortable, feeling lost at times, feeling lonely. And so he writes to them to comfort them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So let's keep that in mind. Now as we start a book, we need to do just a little bit of background. Our very first verse here says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter clearly wrote this book. We know who Peter is, the apostle Peter, one of the 12 disciples. One of the inner circle of Peter, James, and John, the three disciples who oftentimes got to spend close personal times with Jesus that not even the other disciples got to spend. I feel like sometimes Peter gets a bit of a bad rap, and this is why. It's a theory that's kind of uh, bubbling up in my head. So with Peter, we know a lot about him from the Gospels, yes? I mean, he's in all of them. One of them, really, uh, and, and he's a major... Uh, a major character in each of the Gospels, a major person. So we know a lot about him, and of course a lot of this is not the best, right? Peter is the guy who is constantly opening his mouth and inserting his foot. He, he flies off the handle, right? Most, many of us can, you know, we're, we're shaking our heads and smiling because we know we can be like that too. So we know a lot about Peter from the Gospels. We know a lot about him from the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts. Largely Acts, right? Kind of two halves. Um, the first half centers on Peter, the last half centers on Paul. All of it, the main character is the Holy Spirit, so don't get me wrong there. So we know a lot about Peter, but we don't have that many writings from Peter. We just have these two short epistles. So I feel like we kind of know Peter based off of the things he does and did in Scripture, but not that much off of his writings. Conversely, with Paul, we don't know that much about Paul, do we? I mean, you can't even really conclusively say whether or not the man was married ever from the scriptures, I don't think. We don't know that much about him. We know a little bit, but wow, he wrote 13 books of the New Testament. So we tend to know a lot about Paul from his writings. We know a lot about Peter from his actions. And none of us like to be judged by our worst actions and our worst days. And sometimes that's how we judge Peter. And because we're not as familiar with Peter from his writings, many people don't know this. If I had to ask you, to fill in the blank here. Let's see if you could do this. Peter is known as the apostle of fill in the blank. Yeah. The apostle of hope. Ever since the days of the early church, he is known as the apostle of hope. All the church fathers write about this. And it comes from this letter. I think we don't spend enough time in First and Second Peter, and so I'm glad that we can get into these letters and know Peter by more than just what he did, but by the writings that he left us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So Peter wrote this. Uh, the time he wrote this is, is most certainly in the 60s A.D. I think we can safely say that. We can kind of bracket that for a few reasons. One, he's very familiar when you study this letter Uh, with parts of Ephesians and Colossians. Prison epistles from the Apostle Paul that we can date very well to around the time of 60 or so AD. We also know that Peter, according to church history, and it's it's fairly substantiated, we don't have reason to doubt this, died in the Neronian Nero, Emperor Nero's persecution. 
Right, so Nero's reign from 54 to 68, uh, there was the great fire in Rome, which Nero blamed on the Christians in 64. Lots of persecution at that time. So we can date this book into the 60s, I think, pretty safely, at some point uh, during uh, Nero's reign. Another hint here as to where he was writing from. The end of our little epistle, 1 Peter, he brings greetings from Babylon. Babylon. Do we think he means the place in modern-day Iraq where I've spent a little bit of time? I don't, I don't think he means that. In the Old Testament, Babylon is typically Babylon. But in the New Testament, oftentimes, in particular in the book of Revelation, uh, Babylon refers to Rome. And so I think so here, too. I think so here. It may not absolutely be, but we know who wrote it. We know when he wrote it, give or take. We know where he wrote it from, or we think so, and that would make sense. Right? He's referencing Mark at the end of this letter, and we know that Mark was in Rome for a time, um, and church history tells us that Peter was in Rome for a time, so it just kind of makes sense. So we know who wrote it when, and, and we know uh, that it was uh, uh, written uh, from Rome. Um, when we understand a bit about church history and the Emperor Nero and what he did to Christians... In that time, which is very sad and tragic. Then we understand also that Peter was no stranger to suffering. No stranger to suffering. So R.C. Sproul will mention uh, uh, this book, uh, 1 Peter. He'll have this to say. When Peter writes to the church about faith and trust in the providence of God in the midst of suffering, he is speaking not in abstract terms, but from the vantage point of one who has been called personally to endure such sufferings himself. A letter from a man such as this is a treasure for the church. So that's what I think this letter is, a treasure for us. So we move on, and and as we move into the first verse here a little bit further, we see that it is addressed to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion from the diaspora. In Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are exiles. And this is nothing new in Scripture. This is one of the major themes of Scripture. In fact, exile is God's plan. When Adam and Eve sinned and fell, they were sent, that famous John Steinbeck title, east of Eden. Away from God's presence, Away from the place where things were perfect and pure and holy and upright. As we fast forward a little bit in scripture, we see Abraham, the patriarch, being told right, that he gets to come through a land, but he doesn't get to live there. He's a sojourner. He's an exile. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the promises keep going down to Israel. Eventually they end up in Egypt. They're slaves. God brings them out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. As they're about to enter the promised land, the land promised Abraham, even then Moses knows that they're not going to keep God's promises there. That they're going to be exiled. And it happens. 722 BC, the Assyrians uh, destroy the northern kingdom, take some off into captivity, but mostly just destroy it. 586 BC, the Babylonians Babylon, again, come and destroy the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, 
destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple, take those off, take people off into captivity. We have books in the Old Testament written from exile. Exile was God's plan. Exile was God's plan from which he would draw his people back to him. From which he would redeem them by his good and gracious covenant in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So as we come into the New Testament, it's really no surprise to see Peter using this language. Now because he's using this language, it does make it a little bit difficult to identify exactly to whom he's writing. And what I mean by that is, is he writing to Jews or is he writing to Gentiles? These folks in this area, uh, Cappadocia, Galatia, Pontus, Asia, Bithynia, it's, it's Asia Minor, it's modern day Turkey. The Apostle Paul went through on his missionary journeys. We know there were synagogues there. Right, so there was a Jewish presence there. So are these Jews being persecuted? Right? Are these Christian Jews being persecuted perhaps by their fellow Jews for having embraced the faith? Perhaps. Maybe he's writing to Jewish Christians. Could very well be the case. Lots of Old Testament language in there. But just like the Old Testament often uh, uses uh, uh, foreshadowing and types uh, to, to point forward to realities to come. Think of the metaphor and, and the, the reality of slavery to to Egypt in the Old Testament and how that's a picture of our slavery to sin. So the exile in the Old Testament, perhaps it's being used here in that spiritual sense. So are these Jews? Perhaps. They could also be Gentiles. It's very possible. And from this letter, as you read it, um, uh, Peter will bring up exiles uh, multiple times. Uh, Chapter 1, verse uh, 17 uh, and 18, he'll say this. Uh, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. When you read here, uh, you can read chapter 2, verse 11 as well. Uh, It says again, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Some of the lists of the sins that you see here, their former lifestyle, the feudal ways of their forefathers, seems to me to imply a Gentile inheritance, or a Gentile background. So I kind of lean that way. But as we continue to study this epistle together and we read more, uh, maybe it'll become clearer. I I can deal with the fog. I can deal with not knowing for sure. Do you want to know why? Because we are exiles. We are exiles. So regardless of whether these were Jewish Christians, regardless of who they were being persecuted by, fellow Jews, whether it was Nero, who knows? If we don't know every detail, they were exiles. They were suffering for their faith. And we are exiles. And oftentimes we suffer. And in particular, we suffer for our faith. So this was God's plan to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. We read in Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, that our inheritance right, is not here. Our citizenship is in another kingdom, a heavenly kingdom. And we hear similar words in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 and 16. Of course, this is in the hall of faith, uh, and it's coming on the heels of talking about Abraham. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. 
For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Because God has prepared for us a city, and that is where we are be looking. It only makes sense that God is the one who sends us into exile. And so he doesn't just say to the exiles, he says to the elect exiles. To those whom he has chosen by his grace. And the verse goes on, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The scriptures talk about foreknowledge with multiple things. You can think of Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Foreknowledge often in Scripture is not just referring to God knowing about things ahead of time, but having right, an active hand in bringing them about to pass. So he has chosen us and he sends us into exile here, away from his good and gracious presence. This is God's plan of exile. But what then is the purpose of our exile? What is the purpose of our exile? If God sent us away from his presence and he's bringing us back to himself, what about this time as we are moving back towards him by his grace? Well, I think we get from this text a few reasons for why God has sent us into exile. First, uh, we see in the sanctification of the Spirit in verse 2. God has set us apart. And God is making us holy. And He does that through this process. Through this exile. Through this time of, of being away from Him as fully as we desire to be. God brings about a change in us. And he does this by his spirit. Scripture says very clearly that this is the will of God. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, our sanctification. So this is one of the things God is up to in our exile here. In this heaven and in this earth. Before the new heavens and the new earth are ushered in. Romans chapter 5 Apostle Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that he has given to us. The exile is the place where God's Spirit works in us and moves us back towards him. And as it moves us back towards him, it teaches us to be, as the Holy Spirit moves us back towards him, he teaches us to be obedient to Christ. Obedience is a lifelong process for everyone. It's never finished in this life, just like sanctification. But God is moving us towards obedience. The obedience which Christ demonstrated. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 8 says that even Christ learned obedience through what? He suffered. So as we suffer in our exile here, awaiting right, the new heavens and the new earth and to see God face to face, longing for that day, God is bringing about obedience in 
our lives. So he's sanctifying us, he's bringing about obedience, and lastly, he is sprinkling us with the blood of Jesus Christ. He has sprinkled us, and he will continue to sprinkle us by the blood of Jesus Christ. Certainly, Old Testament imagery here. You can think back to uh, the book of Exodus, after Moses had been given the Ten Commandments and Israel covenanted with God and they said, we will do all these things. Have you learned yet in life not to make promises like that? We will always do everything perfectly. You know, we, we, we're so quick to do that, but we never really can do that. Praise the Lord, one man came and did that. But in Exodus chapter 24, Moses took half of the blood from the sacrifices and he put it in the basins. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the blood of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And of course, uh, those famous words. uh, And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. If only. If only, right? And so Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. Blood from bulls and goats. A picture of the blood of Christ. David got that picture. And he longed to be washed, as we read in Psalm 51. Isaiah got that picture and knew that God would use the blood of Christ to sprinkle many nations. Even these Gentiles he's bringing in as Peter is writing The book of Hebrews will refer to that blood this way. Chapter 10, verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed. Our hearts sprinkled clean. Our bodies washed by the blood of Christ. The author, uh, the, the letter to Hebrews, whoever that is, writes again in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This sprinkled blood of Jesus meant to cleanse us, meant to wash us, and how we yearn and long for that washing How we yearn and long for that day when we won't need that washing anymore. If you're in Christ, you've been washed once for all. But we still need a daily washing. Oh, one day we'll no longer need that. Oh, do we long for that day. So we see a bit about God's purpose in exile here. And we learn about salvation. God really accomplishes that while we were in our exile. God the Father chooses, should probably predate that, to any exile. He elects, he chooses those whom are his. The Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, comes and purchases us, buys us back, redeems us, accomplishes our salvation in real space and time through his life and through his death on the cross for us. And the Holy Spirit then applies that Redemption to us. Again, in real space and time, washing us. 
working on us while we are in our exile. So we have this picture that's meant to comfort us and give us hope of the God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who is accomplishing our redemption. Who is working out all things for our good and for His glory. So let me ask you, how do you view yourself in this exile? What's your perspective on our exile? Let me ask first, do you perhaps not see yourself in exile here? Is the only thing wrong in your world the fact that the Steelers are not in the playoffs? If that's the only thing wrong in your world, if you are so comfortable here that that's the biggest problem you have, then you appear to be quite at home. You appear to be quite at home here in this place where oftentimes I don't feel at home. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, we'll talk about that this way. So, uh, verse 6, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. If you are at home here, if everything in this world is just hunky-dory for you and you don't want it to change, you don't feel the brokenness of the world around you, the brokenness and the sin in your own heart, if you don't have a longing and desire to be with the God who made you forever, I remind you, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And the blood of Christ is available even now. You can repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Words from the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2. So perhaps that's you. But if you do see yourself as a sojourner, as an exile, as a stranger in this world, let me ask this. Are you a pointless sufferer? Are you a hopeless sufferer? Can you not see the point in any of this? Have you lost all hope? Perhaps that's how you read even the book of Job. This poor man who knew none of the reasons for his suffering. But just because Job knew none of the reasons for his suffering doesn't mean there were not reasons for his suffering. Jesus came and suffered. In many ways in exile, left and came here. Was quite uncomfortable. Suffered significantly. Job Suffered significantly. The text is very clear to tell us that in, with regards to his suffering, he was innocent. So Job, as this suffering man, if he learned nothing else from his suffering, he learned to walk in the footsteps of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The one who suffered greater than any of us ever will. And the only one who was sinless. Job is this picture. He points to the one who would come and would suffer for others and who would be truly innocent. I invite you to see 
God's hand in your suffering, that doesn't make it easier. I invite you to see God's hand in your exile here. This is what he has planned. This is what he ordained. It's not our plan, it's his plan. But if you know him, even in the most difficult moments, then you've not lost hope. That it's a good plan. That it's a gracious plan. And that he has a purpose in it. That he has chosen you, that he has, this plan did not surprise him. This happens according to the foreknowledge of God. That he's sanctifying you by his spirit. That you're learning to become obedient as Christ was obedient. And that you've been washed. You've been sprinkled by the blood of Christ. If that is you, then perhaps you're full of hope. And that's what Peter would have us be. As he writes even just these first two verses. Words of hope. That there's a purpose in our exile. That we are being prepared for our eternal home. James is familiar with this. He knew how to accept trials and suffering in his life. He encourages us to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know... I'm sorry, I totally lost my place there. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The Apostle Paul understood this. He wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. If we'll take even these first two verses at heart, meditate on them, chew on them, we will feel and know and experience that God's grace and peace are being multiplied to us even now. God's grace, His unmerited favor being poured out upon us in the person of Jesus Christ. His peace that surpasses all understanding. Peter has a word for elect exiles today. Have you heard the old phrase, uh, pain is temporary, pride is forever? If you were involved in athletics, you might have heard that before. Pain is temporary, pride is forever. It's meant to like encourage you, right? To get in the weight room and work super hard and do a few more reps and run, uh, you know, that extra mile. And, and then you'll be the champion. You will be the victor and that will last forever and you will have pride. Well, championships don't last forever. And neither does pride. <laughs> in fact, pride comes before destruction. <clears throat> but let me, tell you, let me tell you what does last forever. Christ. Christ lasts forever. Exile is temporary. But our true home is with God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Christ lasts forever. And that's where we will one day live forever with Him. So we can hope in Christ, the great shepherd and overseer of our souls, because not only is our exile temporary, not only is Christ forever, but our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
is with us, even during this time of exile. Let's hope in God. Let's hope in the good news of Jesus Christ as we walk together in our exile. Let's pray.